This episode is brought to you by Bubs Naturals, and one of the most profound new supplements I've added to my own diet is collagen. And Bubs provides the only collagen that is not only NSF certified, but also Whole30 certified. Now, when we think of collagen, you might think of beauty products, but when ingested, collagen not only positively affects skin, nails, and hair, but also joint and gut health, something that I witnessed personally within myself. Now, I'm also a huge fan of altruistic business, and Bubs was founded out of tragedy. Glenn Bub Doherty was one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi. And his friends, Sean and TJ, founded this company to not only create great nutritional products, but also take 10% of the proceeds and donate them to charity. So they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 20% off your first purchase if you use the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear more about the inception of Bubs and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 of Behind the Shield podcast with Sean Lake. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 511's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 511, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorne is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. 
I myself have used them for several years and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Mark. Now, Mark is a veteran police officer who has worked in multiple specialty units, including the SWAT team and gang unit. So we discuss a host of topics from the interesting story that led him into law enforcement his martial arts journey, combatives and defensive tactics in law enforcement, the power of mentorship, and so much more. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Mark. Enjoy. Well, Mark, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Uh, thanks for having me. This is, a, this is a very strange, strange event for me. Yeah, I can imagine. So I know you, you know, spent a lot of time undercover. Um, you don't have to be specific, but where roughly on planet Earth are we finding you today? So I'm, I'm in the state of Virginia and uh, on the, the eastern uh, seaboard. It's, a, it's an area called the Seven Cities. So... I'm, I'm in one of those. Brilliant. All right. Well, I'd love to start at the very beginning. And again, obviously, people that are you know working law enforcement, this can go as deep or as shallow as you want. But tell me a little bit about where you were born and tell me, tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. So I have an older sister and a younger sister. I was born up north. I was born in Connecticut. Um, my dad was like a really just a, like we were just a everybody says the same thing, like blue collar family, but he was, he was a really hard worker. He worked for UPS for, for years. Um, my mom was a stay at home mom. Uh, so like typical, like typical, just suburban family. Um, when I was growing up, like I was, I, I'm a short, I'm a short dude. I can't get taller, but I try to get wider, which is, which is, uh, that'll, that'll play into things later. But 
the there was no there was no impetus for me to become law enforcement. I didn't have law enforcement in my family. I didn't dress as a, like a, a Halloween. There was no there was no big calling. Um, but my mother was the only one who thought that I would uh, like to try law enforcement. When, when I was in the military, I got out, was kind of flitting around, didn't really have much to on the plate, what I wanted to do. And she said, have you ever thought about being a cop? And I was like, no, I don't like cops. And she was, she was the only one that <laughs> thought about it. I had, I had run-ins. I was just a scrappy kid. I was a sarcastic, short kid. And that's, that was my makeup. That was, uh, I was sarcastic and funny. And that's, that's how I defended myself until I realized when I started getting into some scraps that for whatever reason, I was kind of naturally good at it. And, uh, that didn't help me any, but so all through high school, I got, I got really good grades, um, was expected to go to college and just couldn't, couldn't see myself doing it, played sports growing up. Now I was average at most everything I've never. And, and you'll see that like the, the IG that I have with, you know, with my kind of public thoughts and stuff like that. Like I'm not great. I'm not elite, not a champion. I I've been lucky to been around them. Even coming up in high school, I had some really high level uh, high school athletes that wind up going to college, wind up uh, going into the farm system for some baseball teams. And I was, I was not that. But it was, you know, it was just a, it was a good learning experience coming up, and I've always just kind of had a different perspective on things, and uh, yeah, it was, it was. But you're definitely as a as a northern as a northern kid, you 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 stick out like a sore thumb when you come down south to become a police officer. <laughs> now, when you talked about being smaller, um, I was a very small child, and I wasn't wide either. I was proportionately tiny. Um, when you look back, were there any elements of being bullied and was there anything subconsciously that kind of maybe led you to be a protector later in life? So, yeah, the absolute, absolutely. Um, I wasn't, the bullying did not last long because I was generally funnier than the bullies. So like I was, I was pretty whip smart with my mouth. So I would, I would joke them to the point where they were like, well, we can only beat this kid up so much and now everybody's laughing at us so i was generally left alone and i was always a loner i was i was the kid that if i showed up at your party there was there was a it was a big deal because i didn't I, I was moderately popular um but i didn't i didn't hang with when anyone click coming up i was just known for being like off on my own but kind of a stalwart friend if if you knew me then there was um I was I wasn't going anywhere. Uh, even even today, like there's there's a movie. I think it's I forget what it's called. It was it was Young Guns One or Young Guns Two, where they were talking about Billy the Kid, and when he died, somebody carved pals on his gravestone. And I always thought that was cool coming up as a as a kid, and that's pretty much how I view my friends. I, I even sign off on emails and stuff like pals, like that's so that's what it meant to me coming up. So it was I was always if you were my friend, you were my friend, but you you had to earn it. And as far as the protector, I mean, not to, everyone has their traumas. Everyone goes through what they go through. Um, there were, there was incidents between my father and my mother that definitely led me to want to be a protector, to, to consider myself too frail to do anything to, to protect my mom in certain instances. And they're, they're still together to this day. 
Um, and they, they worked out a lot and they've, they've provided for me more than I could ever thank them for. But there was, there was definitely, there was an impetus for me to be a protector. I was always a small kid, but like I said, in high school, one of the best and worst things that ever could have happened to me was I was, there was a bully in my high school and me and my friend wound up in front of the, the bus stops there was a fight between between us and this kid and and we won the fight and while it was the best thing because the bullying just like there's there's nothing to go from there it made me a little arrogant to the point i i I thought i was uh better than i was at being scrappy so there was there was many times that the lesson was learned that i did not quite know how to fight as good as I, i thought i did so got my ass kicked early and often which corrected a lot of the problems going later on in life about uh, overestimating your capabilities and really made me want to train. So that, that got me into some, some martial arts and wanting to be uh, physically better, which obviously lends itself to where I am today. So yeah, there, and I, I think everybody has that. There's always, there's always going to be something that, you know, you can, you can go back to in your childhood that kind of drives you to your purpose. Or the opposite drives you to your demise if you don't overcome it and really audit what's going on with you. Absolutely, it was it was amazing to learn just how many people in uniform had trauma in their lives, and then when you parallel that to like you said, I mean, you just summed it up perfectly. It can either be something that you grow from or something that tears you apart, and so you know you have. I always think you know back to to kindergarten. You have little kids that would play together regardless of color, creed, you know, socioeconomic status um, that are exposed to trauma, no fault of their own, and they can go one of two ways. And so there's always this assumption that everyone in uniform had this amazing blessed life. And now we're this kind of, you know, pseudo superhero that swoops in and saves everyone when the reality is most firefighters, cops, you know, paramedics, a lot of them have been through the same kind of shit that some of the other people that we either run on as patients or, you know, have to have to restrain, have to arrest. The path just took them in a different direction. It's not saying that the, the police officers or firefighters were, you know, strong enough to make the right decision. It's just trauma happens to everyone. I don't think that's ever really acknowledged in the first responder professions what happened to us before we ever pinned the badge on our chest. Yeah. And it's, it's a huge, I mean, and obviously now, and it's a bit of box checking now they're kind of seeing that, um, you know, the, the term is holistic wellness and overall wellness, uh, and, you know, mental health. And it is a box checking because they're, they're finding our burnout rate going through the roof, but yeah, that's absolutely the, the, the part with me that I, that I find a little bit different is I've, I've never had a problem expressing my emotions, expressing my disappointment, my, my anger, my joy. Um, my, my buddies will tell me, um, constantly like, man, you, you, you just, you just tell us that you love us like all the time. I was like, yeah, why wouldn't I? And I didn't realize that how big of a thing that was for some, some of my other friends that like the first time I hug them and I'd be like, Hey, I love you, man. Like I'll see you tomorrow. And they're looking at me like, you know, I got three heads. I've just always, I've just always been that way because, you know, I, I lost people early um, and it's just all, it was just always a thing. And it wasn't really ingrained in me from my parents. It was just something I, I picked up. And when, and when you talk about the, the trauma and I teach community policing in the academy and it's one, it's one of the and it's my version of community policing. We'll get into that later if you want. It's, it's not the 
the rote version of community policing. But when I was in high school, um, when I, when I say that I did not like cops and I did not want to be a cop, I had an incident in high school where I was, I was going to pick up my friend and where I lived in Connecticut was seashore idyllic suburban, suburban town. Um, and where he lived is in New Haven, Connecticut. There was what was considered project housing and New Haven at that time was known as little New York. And it was, it had gangs and, and all what, a, what an urban setting, what you, what you would think of for like, just kind of, uh, an underserved area, non-functioning neighborhoods. And, uh, it was my buddy Shay and he's, I still talk to him to this day. Um, he, he's amazing. So I go to pick him up and we get pulled over and I did not know the reason for the stop. I, to this day, do not know the reason for the stop. Uh, I can surmise now what, what the reason was for the stop. And Shay was, uh, Shay was a young black kid. I was a young white kid. They immediately got him out of the car. Uh, they put me on the ground and they illegally searched Shay. Uh, that one officer illegally searched Shay. And he wasn't, he wasn't brutalized or, or beat up or anything like that, but he was roughly treated. I was told I was in the wrong area. What, what are you doing out here? And basically, um, when, I, when I looked up at the officer that was kind of keeping me at bay, I didn't, I didn't recognize it then. I recognize it now. He was, he was scared. And when I, when I teach community policing, that, that's what I tell these officers. I don't know if he was scared of me, of what, of what could happen, or if he was scared of what he was watching his partner doing and, and knew that it was wrong. I, I hope it's the latter and he was just a coward. But they put us back in the vehicle. And when I'm driving to go to the movies now, I did, and I, I always tell the story, and I always say this, I did what every 16-year-old would do in that situation after that had happened to him. And I always asked the classes, like, what do you think that is? And they were like, oh, go to the movies or get really angry. I talked mad shit about what I would have done if that cop had touched me one more time. All I did was, like, my ego came out. And as I'm, like, expounding on what I was going to do to this officer, Shay just looked at me and told me to shut up. He was like, shut up. And he said, we're going to go to the movies. You'll go back to Milford. That's, that's my day to day. And I didn't, because, because my, all of my control had been taken in that moment. I didn't, I didn't realize what a lesson that was for me. But now that I'm an adult and as I grew up that he, he was going through that a lot because of where he lived and the color of his skin and in a profession that heretofore I was, I was to think of as heroes. And these are the people that you go to help. I, I it, it didn't even occur to me that that could happen. And here he is a guy, I, a guy that I respect. That's my best friend. He's telling me, yeah, that's, that's how I have to navigate through life. But for me in that moment, as a 16 year old kid, I got violent after that encounter and I know why, because all of my control, all of my ego, all that I thought about myself as a man, as, as someone growing up, all my, all my big testosterone filled dreams of, of what I was were taken from me. Like I was nothing in seconds by an authority figure that I was supposed to look up to. And that had a dramatic effect 
on my life. Just that one, just that one interaction. And I, I, as I went through my policing career, I realized, holy, holy crap, like we're missing something because you multiply that times two incidents, three incidents, you know, ad nauseum, you're going to have a problem because not everyone is going to handle it with the grace that Shay did. And me and Shay talk and um, he actually came to, came to my house one, one time and was uh, talking to uh, one of the other cop things I did is I'm on my third marriage. So it was my, it was my second wife that met him. Um, we can get into that too, if you want, because you talk about uh, trauma in your personal life. My, my professional life has always gone reasonably well. But anyway, he meets my wife and he's, he's, he's talking about all these things. And she was like, she was astounded by what Shay was saying. Oh yeah, Mark got into this and, and Mark did this. And what Shay said was, if you had taken a picture of me and a picture of Mark and put them on a board and wrote all that we had done in our, in our little high school careers and the beginning of our adulthood, you would swear that you would have to switch the pictures because that is how people view the different skin color. And it was, it, I mean, he was, he was absolutely right. And this is a kid who became the valedictorian of his class. He stayed in Connecticut. He got on the board of education. He started a midnight basketball program. He did everything he could to, to make it better. And here I am, the kid that had everything handed to him, the, the, the skin color that does grant you the privilege of, of not being looked at as other. And I was, I was tearing through high school. I, there was not a fight I did not want to start, did not want to get involved in, did not want to end. And it was all because I felt like nothing at the hands of law enforcement. And those, those cops that did that, it, it probably wasn't even the most malicious. It wasn't malicious. It wasn't, they were thinking they're fighting the good fight. They're doing what you're supposed to do. Hey, there's a, there's a white dude out here. We've never seen him. He's getting in the car with this kid. Like gotta be dope. Gotta be a gun. Gotta be something, got something going on. And they did it wrong, but that, that, that stuck with me and, and sticking with Shay, because I had like, I, I don't drop friends watching him go through the years. It just made me realize I have to do this better. Like if I'm going to do this and I'm going to be a police officer, like I have to remember this every day that I have to do this better. I signed up to be better. I can't, I can't go where society goes and get angry at, at people. I have to, I have to try to get them to understand that, you know, what my role is. So <clears throat> that, that was a, that was a, I mean, it is, it's a childhood experience, but it, it definitely stuck with me. And you have all those experiences that make up every person. And like I just said, and you, and you alluded to it, I could have used that and just, and there was probably a lot of times that I was lucky it didn't turn to that, but that could have been in my demise. I, I could have, I could have in three seconds made a decision I couldn't have taken back and my life would have taken a very different path. So I, I always, I always uh, remember that as, as I go forward. Yeah. Well, I think that's another thing that people don't understand. A lot of people have negative police interactions. I had one very, very, very recently um, with the SRO in my son's school um, my son in the other house, very, very long story, very short. His his mother, my ex, and, and the, the guy she was with at the time, who ironically was in law enforcement, 
were, you know, at each other's throats the whole time. He was in a very low place. My son basically just had a kind of, you know, broke down in tears in, in a classroom, had some intrusive thoughts, was not talking about harming himself, harming anyone else, nothing. was basically a kid crying at a desk. And they ended up sending him um, Baker Act, sending him to a facility for three days. And uh, so I had my child kidnapped, basically, and it went against all protocol. You know, there was nothing justified. They didn't call the uh, the psychologist to come and evaluate it, nothing. It was a fucking jobs worth piece of shit police officer that basically wanted to go home. And so she just shut, you know. And then when I was there, kids from that same school were being cycled through. And as I start talking to to parents and teachers, they're like, yeah, they've been doing it, but no one's really advocating for them. So I was one of obviously many, many voices, but that actually got changed. And now if they did what they did to my son, they would be locked up. But again, my thing was to address that issue at that place with those people, not walk away and say, I hate all cops. You know what I mean? So... But that's a very hard thing to do, especially when you're indoctrinated to maybe in an environment where cops are painted as, as the enemy. So before we get to your journey, talk to me about Shay, because mentorship is such an important part of how we change a lot of these vicious circles that we're in. What did he do as a civilian to push the needle? So he so and I don't want to speak too much to his story because, um, you know, he's a, he's a private man as well. But that's that's what he started to do. He's, he, um, when he was on the board of education, he got a midnight basketball program going on. He started to mentor, um, at risk youth. He was always big on taking, uh, financial responsibility, understanding your roles, your rights, your responsibilities. He was big on knowing the law, um, which I think is huge. And I think law enforcement should be a huge part of, and he's, he's still, he's, he's reticent to, I don't want to say trust law enforcement, but to bring law enforcement in um, at at all times, because because like you spoke to, you want to make sure you have the right law enforcement officer there speaking the what what needs to be said in a way that is not a lecture. Um, so he, and he taught, he, he, uh, when we talk, he always said, I want, I want your perspective on this and Hey, what, what do you think about this law? And, um, what kind of law enforcement officer would, would you want, would you want in a school and things of that nature? So, and he's always pressed for education. That's where he's been the, the biggest boon to me. Um, because that's, that's, what's going to solve it. The, the education and enlightenment of the masses. And, and we see it. We, we, we see people just glom on to the first ignorant clickbait thing they can. And then that becomes their doctrine. That becomes their ideology. And me as a 16 year old, I did. I did exactly what you don't want to do. I generalized law enforcement because of that one interaction. Now you multiply that times whatever, and then you have society turning on law enforcement. And now you, you I call it the confluence of poo. Because you, you have law enforcement who for years has not gone out into the community and been honest with, hey, I don't need to be liked. I don't need to put lip sync videos out. You don't need to humanize me because I'm a human. So I'm already humanized. But hey, this is what we do. This is our tactics. This is why we wear our gear. This is, this is what you can and cannot do. This is how we would like you to conduct on a traffic stop. Not that you have to, but this is what alleviates our fear. And instead, we pulled back and we, we've got it, we've got it, we've got it. 
And then you just hope that society keeps respecting and, and agreeing with us and you're not educated. And then you have kids that have bad interactions with whatever law enforcement officer, then they're forming opinions and either they grow up and kind of grow out of it, maybe have a better interaction or, or however that like manifested itself to now, now I'm a responsible adult. Instead, now you have a societal pressure of all law enforcement is, is illegitimate. Um, these outlier examples, they're not outliers. This is how they go about their business 100% of, of the time. And that, to Shay's credit, when, when a lot of this stuff started going south, that was when we started having conversations again. He was like, well, what about this? And, and hey, is this, is this how you would do this? Or is, is this how this protocol has to be? Just like in your example. You don't have to be the, the, the yeller or the loudest voice or um, I want everybody fired, but just asking the question, hey, is this is this normal? Is this best? Is this is this what we should be doing? By and large, you're going to find a reasonable audience for that. And that's a lot of what kind of Shay brought to the fore for me and slowed my role when, you know, because at the end of the day, I am law enforcement. So when I hear the ignorance, there is an impetus to 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 defend and to get angry back. And it just, especially in, in today's times, it doesn't, it doesn't help because now you're just, you're just giving the audience what they wanted in the first place, which is just a really angry law enforcement officer lecturing and, and, you know, thinking that they're above everyone else. So, and I think that's, that's vitally important. And Shay's always been, a, he's, he is an educated and enlightened man who who seeks real answers not not what is convenient beautiful your story and obviously is it well i guess combination of yours and shay's really um kind of reminds me of a guy i had on the show who became a friend nick hall now nick was a little boy when there was a hostage hostage situation in orlando and through miscommunication the orlando sniper ended up shooting his mother not the hostage taker um, Nick, who was black, ended up becoming a police officer because, again, he wanted to be part of the change. Um, so, I mean, that in itself is, is such a powerful story. Um, but, you know, as you said, you were, you know, a white kid from the, the better part of town. Um, you got to witness, obviously, what happened to your friend. So walk me through how you navigated that anger to the point where you decided to put on a uniform. And then what was the... What was the environment that you walked into when it came to policing? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so um, I, I, I went through high school. Like I said, I was, I was uh, not, not a bad student. Um, my, my parents, my family were, were edging me to go to, to college. I was going to, I wanted to go play baseball. Wasn't that great at it. Um, but that kind of fell through. And now I'm just languishing and I'm, I'm getting involved in things that I, that they're going to lead me down a, a bad path. Um, so there was an, I'm not going to go too far into the incident, but there were, there was an incident where I realized I wasn't as tough as I thought I was. And it kind of, it kind of woke me up to the fact that if I, if I keep doing this, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make it. Um, and it was just, the what 
and this will lend itself to, to police officers and cops. What I thought I knew about violence, I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't understand it fully. I, I had some basic training in martial arts. I had some basic wrestling training. But then when you start involving people that are at a different level or groups or, or it just dawned on me, this is ridiculous. And I started wanting to be more of a warrior. I started, I was always a reader and I started reading, you know, samurai. And I, I, I think without knowing it, I tried to calm myself down because I was getting in fights and running with, with groups. And it wasn't that, Oh, you know, you, you fell in with the wrong crowd. I was the wrong crowd, you know, like, and, and my, I tell my kids that all the time. I was like, don't think you're going to make the excuse of that. They fell in with the wrong friends. Like you're going to be the wrong friend and your father is going to call you on it every time. So it dawned on me that what I thought was power and, uh, oh, I'm so tough. It's, it's just, it's an illusion and it can be taken away from you by someone who can, you know, squeeze a trigger at two pounds of, of pressure and it's all over. So then I started thinking about the military and that's eventually where I wound up. Uh, I was a spectacular failure in the military, but it did give me discipline. It did show me. When I, when I went into the military, I was 124 pounds. And then a year later, I was 175 pounds because my training up to that point was just kind of like calisthenics and running and athletics and, and like basic weightlifting, nothing of what I learned when I was in the military. So I started getting my bearings and I started really kind of like believing in the warrior ethos and wanting to be that, that real protector. Um, I wound up uh, getting hurt. And couldn't, couldn't really finish what, what I wanted to do. Couldn't really find my niche and I get out and while I'm kind of recuperating, I've, I bounced around. I was a lifeguard for a time. Um, my girlfriend at the time, her family, who is, who is wonderful. She wound up becoming my, my first wife and we're, we're like best of friends now. Um, she has grace and forgiveness, uh, that know no bounds. Um, her family owned restaurants. So I started managing a restaurant and I was just, I was stir crazy. I couldn't do it. And my mom was the one that said, have you ever thought about being a cop? And that was my response was, I don't, I hate cops. Like, are you crazy? Like I could never be a cop. And she goes, I, I think you should look into it. So it stuck with me. And then I started thinking, you know, Maybe, maybe I can go in and see how, see how it is. Maybe it's changed. Maybe it's not how I thought it was. And, you know, we all, as we grow up, I start, I did, I had a different perspective. I was always someone who was looking for the other side of things like, okay, well, this person says this, but what's the true story here? I was always, I was always into history and finding out that, you know, Hey, we hero worship a lot, but there's a lot more sides to everything. So I was, I was starting to get more curious and I was pushing myself to, you know, I can try it and, and maybe I can change it. Maybe, maybe if it is still what I think it is, maybe, maybe I can have an effect. Maybe, you know, maybe just, just try it. So due to uh, earlier considerations that I had in the, uh, in the military about how fast I could go on our nation's highways, I was actually, uh, I had to apply twice to the city that wound up taking me. And it's a, it's a very good thing. The, uni the universe will always, will always provide you what you need if, if you do the work. So um, I was simultaneously given um, conditional offers of employment with two different departments. But the department 
that I had applied to twice, I took, I took that job and it was the, it was, it absolutely was the best thing that I ever could have done. Um, we were talking earlier, I would put my department up against any department in the nation. Uh, while I have, I have, you know, my criticisms and my complaints and anybody that knows, knows me will tell you that, um, they're amazing. And there's, there's never been a group that they are my brothers and sisters. But when I first went to the Academy, I was, I was, I was arrogant to a fault because there was, there was nothing you could do to me physically. Like it wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. And what I started to realize was the words that are coming out of these people's mouths are not backed up by the physical well-being that I am witnessing uh, upon their person. So I was, I would volunteer for extra push-ups. I would, I would push the envelope on, you know, not speaking up when, Hey, who, who is the one that didn't, that didn't have their, their uh, shirt right today. And, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. So I made, I made the Academy uh, a miserable experience for some of my peers who still bring it up to this day. Um, there was, uh, there was a person that was in charge of the Academy. His, his name was, uh, he was a Colonel. So it was Colonel Saunders. And I would always write the memos, Colonel Sanders, uh, cause I thought it was funny. And then you would get extra punishment, push-ups, and and things of that nature. So uh, I had a really good academy experience. But when I came out of the academy and started seeing, um, or, or when I was in the academy, you have to go through what's called defensive tactics, um, which is which is the combatives program. Well, I was already trained, and it was my first inclination that I might not be fit for this. Because at that time, this is 22 years ago, it was done in a trailer and you go in and are you familiar with uh, the red man suits? Yes, I am. Okay. So they had full red man suits, which basically for anyone who's uninitiated is like a foot of foam padding and you're not feeling anything. And, and their tactics were like armbar, pressure points, all this ridiculousness that is not street applicable. And it was just really big, tall dudes, and it was a crucible. They were gonna they were gonna kick the crap out of you, and if they felt you did well enough, then good job, kid. You you uh, you made it out, and that's how scary it can be. And we're awesome. Well, I wound up getting the better of them in scenarios, and in one scenario in particular, I there was a it was a two on one scenario, and I handcuffed one individual, and I'm dealing with the other. And the person I handcuffed, now I did, I lost visual of the person that I handcuffed. I didn't look at him the entire time that I was engaged with the other role player. Well, all of a sudden, the person that I had handcuffed stabs me from behind. And I turned around and I'm, I just start teeing off on the role player, right? Like I, I swept the knife out and I'm hitting him in, the, in, in, in his headgear. And they index like and index is, you know, over. What are you what are you doing? What are you doing? And they wanted me to explain what I was doing. And I said, I've, I've been stabbed. And they said, well, what area are you striking? And I told them the ocular socket because I was smashing through the cage and the headgear. And they were like, you're going for his eyes. And I, I repeated a military mantra. Can't see, can't breathe, can't fight. And that was it. They were like, get out of here. We got to discuss this, blah, blah, blah. 
the the guy who the role player who actually came out of the handcuffs and stabbed me, he was the one that actually kind of saved me and said, no, he's, he's well within his right. It was deadly force, but they were angry. And I, to this day, I don't think it was because of the, the moves I was using or the, it was deadly force. I was justified in what I was doing. <clears throat> I think they were angry because they expected a certain outcome and they didn't get it. And their egos were bruised. And this instructor was like no he's good he's well within his right he could have he could have taken his weapon out at that point so we were all good but then i had a bit of a target on my back and it i was i was angry i was like what what training value is that and and as an aside like the instructor i asked him i said sir just out of curiosity uh how did you get out of handcuffs and he said my cousin came in because you weren't paying attention to me. so he said that there was a third party that came in because i was lost visual of him in the room and uncuffed him and because i took my eyes off him so good on him for coming up with uh with the scenario but i started seeing that this is this is not training this is this is a beatdown. like you're you you guys are bullying students in another instance there was a, a really big officer from another department because we shared the academy at that at that point with other departments that would come through <clears throat> and this guy was just a big burly guy and we're all lined up and there's metal lockers behind us because that was the training classroom this guy comes in and just chokes um one of the kids that was standing next to me and slams him up against the locker and puts his hand around his throat and we're aghast. Like everybody in the room is, is just, their eyes are wide open and he lets this kid go. And, and this individual is still in the department and he's grasping at his throat. He's having trouble breathing. And this big burly officer, he goes, I'm just, I'm just showing you how quickly this can happen. And he's kind of reading the room. And he said, does anybody have a problem with that? And I raised my hand. I said, I do. And he looked at me and he's like, you want to go outside? And I said, yes, sir. I do. So um, a female who was in the class, she's no longer an officer. She was telling, she, she grabbed me. She said, cool, what are you doing? I said, I said, no, that, that's wrong. So he walks me out of the trailer and I'm thinking, like, this is a big dude. So I'm thinking, all right, I got to start like leg striking this dude. Like he, he doesn't look like he, he doesn't look like he, he believes in leg day. So maybe I can take his knees out. And then I'm, I'm making calculations. I was like, all right, my dad can probably float me alone. Uh, I can go get hired at the restaurant. He takes me outside and he starts tearing up and telling me basically the, the, his career, how he was beaten by his dad with belts in closets and he just wants to toughen us up. And he's gone to domestics where he's had to physically assault the males. And then we sit down and talk at the dinner table. And I'm just looking at this guy like, you don't belong being a police officer. Like you're a cop. And, and I looked at him. I said, I said, sir, are, are we going to fight? Is there going to be some sort? I don't understand. He goes, no, I just wanted you to understand. And then to the academy's credit, that that instructor was removed. But th those were those, those were real incidents like that really happened. And I started thinking to myself, maybe, maybe this is not for me because this this is weird. I don't I don't understand this. I understand like the hazing and the, and the hardcore physical nature and but I was never a fan of, of do as I say, not as I do. And that's what that was. You're in, you're in, you're in a red man suit where you can't feel anything I'm applying. You can't feel my kicks. You can't feel my strikes. 
you're giving us this arm bar that anybody can get out of and telling us we just have to do it more. And it stuck with me. There was one instructor there that he was a younger instructor, but he was the one we learned from the most. When I graduated from the academy, he came up to me and he said, hey, I want you to know, like, not all of us think like that. Not all of us are, are down with the curriculum as it's written. He said, this, this is how you become a DT instructor. And I want you to become a DT instructor. I want us to take over the program. And that's eventually what I did. Um, I almost quit because when, when I was, when I was assigned to my FTO, I just, I had such a bad taste in my mouth and I was like, this is, this is exactly what I didn't want to get involved with. Like a lot of these guys have bullying behaviors. A lot of these guys are just shit talkers. And it's not that I don't shit talk, but generally if, if it's coming out of my mouth, I'm either going to back it up or I'm, I'm going to get hurt trying. Um, and I was just like, I don't, I don't think I can do this. And then, like I said, the universe always provides. I met my first training officer and he wound up being a New York transplant and he was just cut from the same cloth. And then I went to my first squad with this, with this field training officer, I FTO, and I meet an ex EOD guy and then a 15 year um, police officer who was on a bike unit, community policing and a couple ex-Marines. And I was like, all right, I can, nope, I can do this. And they were the ones that kept me on the department and told me that there was a hundred percent, a different way to do policing. And they, they did it. And they were, they were the first officers that I saw. And it's rare. And I hate to say that it's rare that everything they knew I was going to know. And by the way, we're going to give you everything we got and your responsibility is to make it better and then pass it on to the next generation. And they're supposed to make it better. And that's, that meant everything to me. And that's just how I've rolled ever since. And that's, that's where my phrase, I don't like cops. I like warrior police, because to me, cop is a shortened way to say police officer. And I don't want to be the shortcut or shortened way to anything. So cops are the reason I'm under horrible rules. Cops are the ones that, that talk all that mess. Cops are the ones that love their stickers and their thin blue Punisher gear. Warrior police is where it's at. Like in a warrior, we define that as police officers. We are protectors. We're defenders. But there is a martial capacity that we have to have. And you are a warrior. And to embody that to me means you fight to make yourself better. You fight to make those around you better. And you fight to make the, the world you inhabit better. And you, you have the skill, you lead with empathy and compassion and you have the skills to back that up because you have to be really confident in the, and that's what those guys taught me. They always wanted to know, like, why, why are we here? What, what's going on with you? They had the empathy and compassion to be slow, to be deliberate because they had the confidence that if this goes south and it can, you're going to know you've met your better within seconds because that's how I train. And that, that, that changed the game for me Im immensely. And that's just how I've rolled for the, you know, the last 22 years. Well, that's an amazing kind of story. And I think a lot of people can relate to that, whether they're in law enforcement or some of the other professions. With the martial arts element, I've been through quite the, <laughs> quite the journey of martial arts from the tip-tappy taekwondo all the way through to, you know, Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu. And it's a constant humbling. It's a constant work in progress. <laughs> um, so 
talk to me about your your kind of journey. Which martial arts did you start with? Where were you kind of at when you entered law enforcement? And then what was that metamorphosis of the DTAC as you progressed through your career? So the when I was a kid, it was it was the Taekwondo, but it was it was just the informal stuff. Um, and then across the street from me, there was uh, a grandfather and um, an uncle. And I started to learn a little bit of Muay Thai to them, but from them. Um, and then it was it was wrestling. But with the, the guys that wrestled, uh, we would do like basic basic striking and then wrestling. And then I got into a little bit of a little bit of boxing just because my father loved boxing. So it was always I am by no means a complete martial artist. I just got into it um, and I had enough friends because my, my parents would not send me to martial arts. Um, but I had enough friends that they, they would come home from a class and then we would we would go through the class. And then I, across the street, there was an uncle and an older brother. And they they were they were um, pretty good level uh, Muay Thai strikers. So I would learn the basics um, and then wrestling in high school. And some just kind of like intramural stuff with with Taekwondo. And so it was always always just it was always on the peripheral, but I loved it. And then I started reading about it. And then I started like reading uh, footwork and, you know, the the Tao of Jeet Kune Do and like just practicing on my own. And then when I went into the military, then I started taking like formal classes. But it was always I would go to a boxing gym for a month and a half. And then I would go to a Muay Thai gym for three months. <clears throat> and then I would, I would, uh, when I, when I first got on the department, I would go like, you know, you'd go do a smoker and, and just see where your skill level was at. So it was always kind of just, um, never anything that I could, I could stick to. Um, but I always loved it and I always read up on it. And then in the, in the military, there's like, there's, there's different like um got they had the acronyms for it and stuff like that so i would i would go to the military's version of uh like the boarding schools and stuff like that they would have um basic combatives and stuff and then i would just every chance i got i would go to the free week classes the one that escaped me was jujitsu until i got into law enforcement so, cause you know, the UFC wasn't, wasn't really big when I was, when I was coming up. And then when I was in the military getting out, it started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. When I went to, um, the, into law enforcement, when I got out of the Academy and then I had the instructor, they would do like formal DT training and you could come train with them. And then we had a kickboxing, um, he was, he was actually a champion in the area. And we would go to his kickboxing gym. So then we started learning kickboxing. And then it was when I became a DT instructor, and that was 2000, 2003, 2005, when I joined the program, um, the, the instructor that hey, said, hey, I want you to be in the program. We're going to start doing the curriculum. He started instituting Hey, we're going to kickboxing class. We're going, we're going to have a ground fighting school. We're going to, uh, you know, do Muay Thai training. So we started doing a continuing basis training and getting better. And then how do we apply this? Let's put gear on, let's do the belts, let's do vehicle extractions live. Let's do it. And we just started coming up with our own 
best practices for law enforcement. Um, and we just started putting, putting together the program. And then we, you know, the, uh, Tony Blower and the spear system, we would, we would send guys to that. And then we would send guys to, you know, uh, three weeks of, of ground fighting with the, the wrestlers from a high school. We, every time we had an instructor that, uh, had any kind of background or any kind of belt in, in another discipline, like let's, we had, we had a guy who did Sambo. So he came in and then he's teaching two weeks and then we'd roll into something else. So we kind of built the program from the ground up and then I had my own incident and it was 2000, 2010, I think it was, uh, I, I fought an armed individual who was, who was trying to kill me and that changed everything with the, the ground fighting stuff because then we were start we we knew jujitsu existed we knew there was um programs starting to kind of come up but we were still striking based and i think again that was our hubris like we all we all were strikers we liked it like i knew how to box i knew i knew how um to to navigate like muay thai so that was that was where we were at and the wrestling we had was basic you know sprawl uh single leg double leg all the all the all the easy stuff so in 2010, I had an incident where there was, there was an individual, um, and that's the other thing in law enforcement. When, when I teach defensive tactics, the way we teach it now, first, first thing we changed was we took the, we don't, we don't go with the red man suit anymore. You're in high gear, uh, which is the kinetic suits that you, you feel it. If, if a student gives you a kick, you're going to feel that bad boy. So that changed a lot because then all of a sudden the role players, are reacting to actual pain instead of, okay, well, I beat you up enough. So now I'm going to go down. So that, that we changed right away. Um, so this incident that I had, it was, uh, like 1130 at night we were in evening shift. You get off at midnight. So any officer that hears this will know that we did not want to get involved in this incident. It was me and my partner. Um, we're rolling around and we see this woman run into the middle of the street. She's waving her arms frantically and we just all give the sigh of we're not getting off on time. And we pulled to the side of the road and she basically, um, she well, she didn't claim it's what happened. She was assaulted, pushed to the ground, a cell phone. She tried to protect her cell phone. Her cell phone was ripped out of her hand and the individual just kept walking. Um, and she points him out and it was on uh, St. Patrick's Day. This individual will wind up being a six foot two, 260 pound semi-pro football player. So it was, it was, it was everything you didn't want to get involved in at 1130 at night. And the incidents of violence against police in which the assailant is actively trying to hurt you are rare. It's, it just is. You can go your whole 20, 20 year career, 30 year career and not be attack to the point where someone is trying to kill you. Now, these incidents are rising up and there's a whole bunch of factors to that society delegitimizing that, delegitimizing us being part of it, but it's very rare. Most of what law enforcement gets involved in is wrestling matches. And most of what is successfully concluded is not because of our training or our prowess. It's because the suspect either has enough respect for what's going to happen to them for wrestling with police, or they just physically tire out or your friends show up. So it's, it's like, you know, successful police encounters are 75% luck, 5% skill and 
more officers show up on scene. This was not one of those. My partner starts talking to him. I start talking to the victim. And basically what we're looking at is a strong arm robbery. However, the victim started hedging her bets and said she just wanted her cell phone back. So now we're like, all right, that's an out. Um, and we were, we were going to take that out. We were going to say, Hey, you know, if now all you're saying is you want your cell phone back, you can get him for assault, you know, but you know, all you want is yourself. She's like, that's, I don't want anything else. Just get my cell phone back. So my partner starts talking to this individual and he's been drinking. And as he's talking to the individual, he he's getting more and more agitated. My partner notices he's got a clip knife, a very big clip, clip knife in his pocket. And he tells him, Hey man, you're getting really hyped up. I'm going to, I see that knife. Is that a knife? He goes, yeah, it's a knife. And he said, well, here's the deal. I don't like talking to you in this agitated state. When you have that knife on you, I'm going to take it out of your pocket. Are you good with that? And he's like, you can do it. You can do whatever you got to do. And he said, look, we're going to, we're going to figure this all out. He said, I'm going to take that out of your pocket though. Don't do anything stupid. Soon as my partner bends down to go get the knife, dude clocks him. And my partner goes down. So now I turned to face him because we're kind of in an L and I said, you're under arrest. And I blast double him and put him on the ground. He lands on his back and I hear metal. Now, when I, when I tell the story, I used to not tell the story, but um, the, my second wife, who's, who's a police officer, she was the one that said, you, you have to tell this because it, it needs to be said. I was already trained to this point and I put myself through scenario situations. I put myself through hood drills where things are thrown at you constantly in like 30 second loops. And I would do scenario based training constantly and I would spar with people. I heard the metal clink on the ground when I dropped them. And my first impulse was, man, my, my weapon must've come out of my holster. So I indexed. And when I indexed, my gun was safely where it was supposed to be. So that clued me into Man, he had a he had a gun in back there. What we do to put people in custody is we generally want to put them on their stomach. I was already kind of trying to roll him to his stomach, but and this is all happening in 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 seconds. But hearing that metal, I kind of paused. He rolled himself to his stomach, which right there when I saw that rapid movement, I was like, uh, I got a problem. So I'm I get on his back. And as I tried to get on his back with his right hand, he's kind of got his left hand. Uh, hopefully you can kind of visualize this. He's got his left hand kind of out sprawling out and his right hand, I'm on top of his back. His right hand comes out past his head. And as he's doing that, he's saying, I'm going to kill you motherfucker. I swear to God, I'm going to kill you. And as I see the, the hand come out, he's got the weapon in his hand and I see the red dot, which means the safety's off. He's ready to go. Um, I pressed the weapon down to the ground and luck, which does play a role when I pin the weapon to the ground, because he, he had been drinking and obviously it's a, it's a heightened sense of, uh, of combat at this point, his finger, when I pressed it to the ground, got trapped between the ground and the trigger guard. So he wasn't actually able to get his finger on the trigger. He was actually trying to squeeze the trigger guard. He wasn't, he wasn't within the trigger. Well, so I see it. And my first impulse was I'm justified right now. If I do it, my second impulse was like, no, nah, I got this. 
If I take one, it's going to be to the shoulder. My partner is kind of getting up now, but he's wobbly. And I see the victim is over with, with him. And quite simply, I didn't want to take his life at that point. So what I did is I upped my violence. I, I started knee striking. And while I'm holding him down, now I have like my, my forearm pressing everything down. And I just started elbow strikes, knee strikes to the point where I did significant damage to him. And I was able to wrestle the gun away from him. And, there, and then this is the mistake. He starts getting up. My partner kind of jumps on his back. And now my, my partner couldn't get in uh, when we were kind of actively, actively engaged. Now my partner kind of sees because when I grab the weapon, <laughs> I, st- I still chuckle. You would have thought I would have recovered a fumble in the Super Bowl when I finally got that weapon out of his hand because I'm just like tucking this thing in like I was getting ready to spike it like it was over. It was obviously <laughs> not over. Um, but then I see now he's got my partner on his back and he's back up. And then I just go right back to midsection body blows. We get him back down on the ground. Um, I secure the weapon. We put him in handcuffs. Most cops that I tell that story to the first thing they say is I would have shot him and they're, they, they are well within their right. It was, a, it would have been justified all day. One of the proudest moments I will ever have as a police officer is I was able to think in that instant that I didn't have to in that instant. And not that I'm any great shakes at it or a superhero or anything. I, I'm proud of myself for, I was, not the best trained, not a champion, not elite, but I was, I was trained enough that the adrenaline did not get me to where I did something stupid where I lost that fight or immediately made the decision that the death on my hip can solve this really, really quick. Go for it. I was able to parcel in part, compartmentalize and think enough, have my OODA loop, you know, the observe, orient, decide, act to... I don't have to right now. I've got it. I've got control of the weapon. I know where his finger is. He's not squeezing one off. I just got to up my violence. But after that, and this is, this is the double-edged sword of my career. Um, immediately after he's taken into custody, uh, I'm getting emails and it's from the chain of command up. Like, that was amazing. You're awesome. I'm glad you're okay. I'm glad he's okay. You did everything that a professional police officer should do. All this good stuff, right? Three days later, uh, I get informed that I have to go to internal affairs because the units that showed up and the units that were initially dispatched to us passed us. They, they went right by the scene, lights and sirens. And the victim was screaming. She's like, they're going right by us. They're going right by us. And I was like, I can see that. Thank you. <laughs> um, so three days later, I'm in internal affairs because what happened I'm cuffing this individual. I'm taking uh, stock of what's going on. I had, he was scratching my forehead at one point. Um, so I, you know, I'm cleaning myself up. His personal property had been placed on a curb next to where the incident occurred. One of my friends uh, who is no longer on the department saw fit to smash every piece of personal property that this guy had. So now and this is what civilians don't understand. This is 2010. This isn't like, you know, nowadays where everything is under the microscope. We've always had things in place to limit what, what the worst of us can do. So there, there was a complaint because of his personal, personal property. And now I went from 
hero to, hey, did you know this happened? Did you see this happen? I'm like, what? Everybody's rescinding their emails. They're like, never sent it. Cool. Never heard of that guy. <laughs> <laughs> but after that incident, that's where jujitsu came in because and this is it's very strange because I, I was telling you before, James, like this is very unusual for me. I, I'm just a grunt. Like if I'm 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 never gonna be a supervisor, I don't have a lot of power. If you see chevrons on me, like pack your shit because the apocalypse is upon us, something bad has happened. So it's it's very weird to talk about my experiences and and say that I'm proud or hey, this was this was good. But I didn't do a victory lap after that. What I thought to myself was, man, I, I had to get really violent to solve that. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm causing bruising, I'm cracking ribs, I'm separating the shoulder, and it's all justified because it, deadly force was justified at that point. But in my mind, and this goes back to martial arts, this goes back to Bruce Lee when he broke his back and how can I be quicker? How can I be better? How can I better myself? How can I be a better human? How can I express myself more honestly? In my mind, I was thinking there has to be a better way of control. And I, that's when I started looking at jujitsu and that's when I found like Gracie survival tactics and the Gracie's and then started doing, started going down the jujitsu route. And that has been, amazing because if you want to build better officers the physical realm is where to do it because you can't hide from it when i when i first when i first went to gracie survival tactics after that incident so i was like the baddest of the bad i was like yeah six foot two two you know everybody i've ever ever tussled with as a police officer is a six foot seven three hundred pound ninja right <laughs> Um, and every officer will tell you the same story. And then you'll see the Axon video. And it was like, uh, that was a 14 year old runaway. And they gave you, they, they gave you everything you could handle, but this was real. This was, this was, a, this was a big dude. He was intent on hurting us. Um, so I thought, you know, I, I got this, like, what's this jujitsu thing about? Can't be any, any harder than wrestling. And it was Haley Gracie was actually teaching the course that we went to. And it was an eye opener. I mean, he was he was telling me how great my muscles looked and how angry I was as he's like on my left and he's on my right. It was like wrestling a blanket. And I just fell. In, I was like, this is it. I was like, this is amazing. And then they were like, hey, like, tell us what you need. And we we went through the T3 cuffing position and everything. So I brought it to my department and <clears throat> from we are we are a Kalia accredited um, department. And they looked at a 10-year period of our use of force. And when I brought jujitsu and we revamped our program, because our, our program is not, I would put our program against any program in the nation. We, we, have, we have multi-disciplines. We now have black belt jujitsu practitioners. We have state champion wrestlers. We have Muay Thai guys. We have boxing guys. We have me that's kind of like, you know, street experience coupled with all these different disciplines. We decreased use of force over a 10-year period by 40%. And our most effective um, use of force was just controlled takedowns. And that's, that's just knowing how the body works, knowing how leverage is, and teaching officers to be not a cookie cutter. Go to your individual strengths. Know how a body works. And 
that that to me, I'm, I'm so proud of the cadre we built. Um, it's kind of slipped. I'm, I'm being actually brought back into the DT program. But our technology, like the Taser, is historically failing more and more every year. And it's because panicked officers bring it out and think it's going to solve the problem. But our DT, our, our defensive tactics, is it's always the top echelon for solving problems. And I love that. So that's, that's the journey for combatives. And to me, we don't invest enough in that because if you did, you, you'd, have, you'd have far better outcomes than what you see on these horrible, and they're still outliers, but these horrible videos are nothing but panicked police officers who don't know how to physically control another human being. And that's, that's all it is. I saw a video of, uh, I think it was London, certainly the British police. Um, it was a guy on a bridge with a screwdriver. I forget yes, what happened. Yep. Yeah, so he, they got, the screwdriver got dropped. Um, and they, again, I think it was straight to the taser. And uh, the dude was able to get the prongs out and then ultimately jumped off the bridge. I think he died in hospital the next day. Now, you know, obviously, there's there's many, many layers to it. But again, as someone who is kind of, you know, like the first step in my grappling journey. I'm only a brand new blue belt, so I'm very, very young in that. But I see, as you know, like when you enter a space like this, and my uh, my instructor is, I don't know what he is, five, four, maybe, um, Filipino guy, and just murders people <laughs> of all shapes and sizes. You, you know, you see the power of that. And there were two two officers, and the, the gentleman in question in this particular incident didn't seem overly large. Um, it it is it's hard when when you when you see these now with the te- the kind of uh, role that you had in the the teaching space in DTAC and you, know, you said doing these scenarios another thing that springs out to me in the fire service a lot of times there's a lot of box checking and there's not a lot of time in discomfort not a lot of time in in training in extreme environments and don't get me wrong you have to walk before you can run and you know there has to be sensible you know rest and recovery and hydration but at times we have to be in that horrible place so the first time we ever feel it isn't outside the training ground talk to me about how you're able to keep that intensity um in some of this training um so in a fight for your life like you experienced you are able to pull it out because if that's brand spanking new for someone chances are they either would have had to pull their weapon or god forbid they would have been shot themselves so um and this is this is i'm i'm (laughs) i'm not the cop you want i'm the warrior police you need so i have not changed our training has live goes um and we have injuries within our training Um, and that's why I'm saying I would put my department against any department in the nation because they understand the need for it because they listened to us. We blow out ACLs. We've had people dislocate elbows. We've had people tear their bicep tendons, but my command staff, while I know they cringe and they're like, holy cow, we just lost the student for three months. They understand the value of it not being the first time on the street when you realize someone's going to punch me in the head. And to that point, we had an incident in a surrounding city in which they, they had a death in their DT program. And there was a whole bunch of reasons that it happened. And 
it, it, the fault lies in a lot of places, but what the impetus was, well, we're taking out head strikes and they, they did it to us. They said, Hey, we, we can't hit him in the head anymore. And what I did was document the Academy class that was not taught head strikes. And there was three incidents in which officers were clocked on the street to the point of bloody noses. One was knocked uh, unconscious for a time. And I had them write emails and all of them said, I really wish I would have experienced this. I didn't know I could recover. I didn't know that someone would hit me in the head. I, I didn't know what it would feel like. And to my command staffs, I will forever be grateful for them because I know I'm a pain in the ass. They said, all right, we, we see the need. What, what can we do? So what I did was I took all the instructors to a boxing class and we went through three weeks of boxing instruction and they taught us how to pull our punches, how to, you know, what, what, like a one to 10 scale, what this is going to do. Then we started doing scat testing for concussions. So we started having a baseline for this is this is what their testing says prior to this is what their testing says after so we did everything we could in our due diligence realizing the fact that yes yeah, civilians might look at it and be like oh my god that's so that's so horrible that's so violent and and to your point yeah but i would rather them them have it here in a controlled environment where they can recover and they can fail and realize they failed then out in the street the first time they get hit in the head they're done because they've never seen that and especially now where the, the academy candidates were getting, and I love them. I absolutely love them. This generation, they do not put up with bullshit. Because if you're going to give them the whole, this is the way we've always done it, or hey, this is why we do it, those little shits are going to Google it, and they're going to they're gonna call you to the carpet. And if you don't have your explanation ready, they ain't listening to you no more. And that's what I love about it. But what they need is the sacrifice, the discipline, and the determination to not just have a contrarian point of view just because I can prove you wrong. But they under, they understand the need, but they are not physical. They haven't been hit in the head. They haven't been pushed to their limits. And to put them out in the street and to think the taser is going to save them or the OC is going to save them or, hey, just get a handcuff on somebody like these, like these 30-year cops that are doing these horrible videos or worse – that's death on your hip. That solves problems really, really quick. So in our academy, you have live go scenarios where you walk into a room and it's a domestic and it's full on and you have to figure it out. Um, the other thing that we do is we instituted, and I, I got this from the military, is hood drills, where you go under a hood, you've got a strobe, you've got heavy metal music blaring, and you go through 72 scenarios at 20 second clips and you have to get your OODA loop straight. What are you doing under stress? What's your adrenaline to you, doing to you? What do you see? Do you see that there's six people in front of you? One of them is armed. We have within that hood drill, someone hands you a baby and is screaming that my baby's not breathing. My baby's not breathing. We've had one of my favorite things that happened with that is uh, an officer smacked the baby out of the mother's hands to the ground. And when we debriefed, I was like, why are you smacking a baby out of a mom's hand? And she goes, well, wh why, why is she handing me the baby? I said, she's panicked. 
And he goes, I said, why would you smack it out of her hand? He goes, I don't know. It was a poison baby. I was like, what? <laughs> so in his mind, he was like, there's something wrong with this. And what we found out to the individual was he had a problem with other people's emotions. If he couldn't understand why you were reacting a certain way, he didn't want to deal with, it, which that's awesome because now, you know, and if there is one thing that I want to give every, well, two things that I want to give every officer candidate is self-awareness and emotional intelligence. Like what, what are your triggers? What does cause you to lose it? What do you do under an adrenalized state? How does, you know, your, your, your adrenaline, your cortisol, how do you respond? How do you get your heart rate back down? What is your breathing pattern? Do you hold your breath? All that stuff is brought into our combatives program. And when we took over the program, my buddy Wayne, who I love, and he's my brother, we were laughing because our academy experience, the first time we went on a traffic stop, we were like, well, here it comes. Like, you got a one-on-one shot of dying right now. Like, you're getting the shootout because that was our training. In the academy, everything was, was, was going south. So when we took over combatives, we started putting in compliance scenarios where all you have to do is talk to someone and they're going to be putting handcuffs. And our command staff was like, whoa, this is supposed to be DT. And I was like, yeah, but you're supposed to be making better officers. So if I silo train and everything about this is just, you know, violence and be brutal, guess what they're going to think when they go on the street? And I want them to go through a three-on-one scenario. And then the next scenario is someone just peaceably surrenders as long as you talk to them nicely, because that's the job. And in the debrief, I'm going to ask them, do you think it's reasonable that you could have gotten in a wrestling match with somebody, put them in jail, and then when you go back out in the street, you go to serve a warrant and the person just comes with you nice and calm, no problem. And then you can watch the light bulb go off. They're like, yeah. And I said, well, then who needs to calm down incident to incident? Well, I do. And that wasn't how I was trained, you know, and then you get this, this hypervigilance and, you know, everything, everything's going to, we, we took that out and, and you're seeing a lot more departments going, Oh, wow. We shouldn't have them like operating red line all the time. Cause that's not, that's not the human condition and it's not law enforcement. All, every eight hours in a law enforcement ship or 12 hours, you're not going hair on fire, call the call, the call, the call, the call to, to, like all sorts of things. And, and that lends itself to the wellness, but there is, and this is, I have a lot of phrases, James. So, um, cause you know, I've been at it 22 years and no one's been listening to me. So this is like, I love the sound of my own voice. So you're going to get them all like, (laughs) just, just because you choose to put on a uniform doesn't make you a hero, but because you choose to put on that uniform, you can be called upon to act like one on any given day. And that has to be in there. You have to get them in a knockdown, drag out fight in a controlled situation. And I'm big on if they fail, they fail. And you tell them you would have died. And that, that right there is not something that a lot of trainers, you don't, you don't do that. You don't do, we don't die in training. Bullshit. Then you're not training for reality. If they're that bad, they need to know it. It is not that you can't learn from it. It's not that you hold that over their head. It's that they absolutely need to realize what the job really is and not the bullshit phrases of we go home, thin blue line. All that shit doesn't mean anything because it's not going to save you. 
if you don't train, your why is not going to pull you through with, with a moderate, moderately trained, purpose-filled attacker. It's not. You're going to die. And, and that's it, – it shouldn't be to scare someone to the point of paralysis. It should be to awaken someone to what their job truly is because when they leave that academy setting – and this is where me and my department, I, I still grumble about it. There's not a lot out there for continuing training. There's the box checking of, hey, every two years, you're going to sit down and you're going to listen to this and you're going to do a PowerPoint. The academy is where I can wake you up and I can build the culture of working out and spar and, hey, here's, here's gyms and here's Here's Muay Thai gyms and here's jujitsu gyms. Um, my, my friend Mitch Aguiar, he has adopt a cop BJJ. They'll pay for your training, right? That's a, that's a total charity that he started. Jeff, he, he, he was training us. I couldn't get cops to show up. Like, and that's the biggest problem in law enforcement is law enforcement. But in the academy, when you can train to that style and train like, cause the, the phrase is train the way you fight. That's horseshit. You're never going to train the way you fight, but you should get really, really close because reality doesn't give a shit about your training, but you should care about training for reality. So if I can get you into a scenario where, Holy cow, there's, there's three guys on top of me because I rushed in, I was trying to play hero and that's the dumbest thing I could have done. We train that in our combatives class. I tell them, if you're in a 130-pound female or male and your suspect is taller than you, why are you going to rush in? Why are you, Get your OC out. Get your taser out. Try to give commands. Try to call for backup. Now, we're still going to get them in scenario-based training where, hey, backup's not available and we're going to see what you got. But I want you to do it smart. I want you to know that jujitsu is going to use leverage is going to have that five foot four. Yeah. You can conquer a six foot one untrained individual. And generally what you're going up against is untrained individuals. These aren't super villains that that's all the stuff you make up in your head. And if you have a plan and you can execute the plan, you're going to be okay. So we do that all in training. One of the, one of the biggest lessons that I learned, especially when it was with jujitsu is when we were going to the survival tactics, uh, Heron, who I love because his philosophy, like he's just a really calm, like he's, he's a thinker. So he laid on his back and you could tell there was like, this is, I don't know how many years ago it was, but GST was really big and jujitsu was getting really big in the law enforcement community. So he had brown belts, black belts, and everybody knows who the Gracies are. So we're beginning the class and he said, all right, he said, here's the drill. I'm going to lay on my back. And all I need you to do is just keep me there. Just keep me on my back. So all these black belts like jump in and they're just like immediately going to side control and trying to like knee ride, get a mount and all that. Stuff. He's just boom, arm, arm bar, triangle, arm bar, triangle, arm bar, triangle. Right. So then he looks at me and like we were we were known because where we came from, we were like one of the first people. And, and uh, I'll get into the story after if I remember. But like I kept sending more people and they really liked that. So I get on top of him and all I did was lay in side control and I just sat there. And he just sat there and then he just tapped me on the back. He goes, excellent. And all these belts are like, what? Like you didn't do anything. He goes, yeah. What did I do? And they said, we didn't do anything either. He goes, what was the drill? And the drill was to just keep him on his back. So if he didn't move, 
why would I move? And that, like, I was like, because I didn't really know what I was doing. But in my head, I was like, all right, well, he's not doing anything. And I just got to keep him here. And that was one of the other lessons that we brought to DT. You, you don't have to win every street fight. You just can't lose. So if I'm going to keep you in guard, if I'm going to keep you in side control, and I know that the radio call came out, and I know that I got backup coming, then that's a win. Keep them where they're at. Keep them secure. Keep them under control. Officers get into this. I got to get cuffs. I got to do this. I got You ain't got to do shit. We're coming. You have to maintain your professionalism. You have to maintain your awareness. You have to maintain the safety of the scene, you, everybody around you, the safety of the suspect. But all you got to do is think of the end result, which is getting them in custody. And that was a huge thing that we brought to combatives. Because when you think of combatives, you think of, well, I got to I gotta be combative. I got I to gotta violence. No, you have to understand violence. And we don't. We, we have this Punisher version of what it is, and it lends itself to officers that aren't ready. And in training, when you have those knockout dragouts, when you have, and we do, we do it progressively within our training, where the way I, I modulated the school is during your training scenarios, those are going to be the roughest fights you're going to get in. On your testing scenarios, those should be the easiest fights because those are towards the end of we, we have a, a five day course we can do, depending on how many people are in the academy, a seven day and a 10 day. When you get to your actual testing scenarios, those are going to be the easiest fights you're going to have as long as you're thinking. But the actual training scenario fights, everything that could go wrong is going to go wrong for you. And you're going to have to figure it out because it should not scare you but it should give you the gift of fear of, wow, like if I rush in, if I, if I am not powerful, because you, you see it, you have officers that'll strike 15 times, but they're not, they're not putting anything into it. They're not, they're not using their hips. They're not thinking about their, the, where they're striking. They're just, they're just going through the motions because either they've never done it, they're not confident, or they just want it to get it over with. I need to find that stuff out. And we have, we have academies where, um, in the surrounding area where everything's static, there's no, there's no live goes, or they do it in like a tiered system where, okay, now strikes are allowed, or now this is allowed. That's just not reality. That's just not how it works. And the beauty of how I, and it, I keep saying, I, like I, I, I revamped a lot of it and I was the lead instructor, but I had, there's, there's two or three guys, um, my buddy Dave, my buddy Wayne, my other buddy Dave, like we put the, we put the program together and then we had a captain who um, he stuck with us through thick and thin, but that was our goal that we want we want you to know what you are, know the fighter, know the fighter you are and you'll know the fight you're in. Right. So you'll know what to pull out. You'll know when to pull the taser, when it's safe, when, when, when it's worked for you, when it hasn't, and you'll figure out your own problems and you'll know it in a controlled environment, so you'll be able to see it better when it's in an uncontrolled environment. And and I don't understand, I don't understand the people that don't understand that. And usually they're looking from air-conditioned offices at injury rates and people dropping from the academy. Well, you talked about standards. Uh, I want to get to the kind of strength and conditioning side in a second. <clears throat> Excuse me, but. Tim Kennedy and, and the Sheepdog Response Team came to Ocala a few years ago 
Um, and it was right after the Parkland shooting. So there was some sponsorship for some spots for first responders. Um, a whole bunch of firefighters, kudos to the, the, the firefighters that came up, um, came and jumped in, a bunch of civilians. Um, and then there was a law enforcement side. And I'd had Tim on the show before. We had a, another interview right after this happened. Um, but he basically said, you know, we had we had problems filling it the, the first day. And then the second day, they had a bunch of no-shows. Um, and what I've seen parallel to that in the fire service is when a lot of our men and women get deconditioned, there, there there's an obvious fear of looking stupid, of, of looking in the mirror and realizing that maybe you're not where you need to be physically. And this is obviously present in, you know, the sheepdog as it was rough. I mean, you got your ass kicked for two days. Um, but uh, but then I see that, you know, in the strength and conditioning side as well. I don't know how it is in your department, but many, many departments, police and fire, from what I understand, definitely in fire. As you said, the bar is set in certain um, academies. Maybe if you're lucky, your orientation, you're at your academy for the actual department will be, you know, a crucible. But then there's an opposition to annual fitness standards to, you know, to not only from administration, often from unions as well, which is fucking mind blowing. So talk to me about, you know, the, the, the maintenance of that. You touched on it before, but how do we maintain the skills as far as whether it's firearms, whether it's the DTAC or whether it's also just the fitness standards that, for example, Jeff and Mitch from the SEAL community were held to, the lifeguard community are held to, but police and fire so often fight against that then becomes a huge detriment as we're out in the streets. So that that's the biggest, like I said, the biggest problem with law enforcement is law enforcement. Um, because they'll, they'll use, they'll use any excuse in the, in the book. Um, we don't, we're, where I'm at, I'm not a union, um, a union state. However, when I started, like I'm TSAC qualified. And when I started going there and I say, you, you start looking at the, um, the Australian Institute of Sport and, and like four sciences done things on it. The biggest, and they always do it anonymous, which which drives me up a wall because I don't do anonymous surveys. I always I always sign them. Um, the biggest detriment to having instituted fitness standards within police departments is upper management and higher higher year officers believing they could not hit the standards, which is the biggest reason to institute standards. However, mandatory is not going to do it. It's just not. Because anytime you make something mandatory, you are immediately going to get people that are going to work around it. And then you're, you're asking for lawsuits. You're asking for you. And this is, this is where law enforcement, even with the community, uh, the community policing aspect of, of, of what I do. It's going to take years and we are just so enamored of the hit it and quit it or, hey, we checked this box. You're seeing it right now, all this wellness programs, because you're having police suicides. You're having incidents of, of drug and alcohol abuse. You're having PTSD. So it's all, like, oh, we're doing a wellness program. We're doing a wellness program. And then you're like, well, hey, how, how many hours are you getting them in the gym? Oh, we're not doing that. Well, hey, are you bringing any like strength and conditioning like professionals in be like no you got any dietitians no you got any psychologists no what, what are you doing oh we're just having officers that went to like train the trainer things well then you're not taking it serious you're 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 box checking you have to build a culture 
of physical fitness. And in order to build that culture, plain and simple, it has to matter. And what law enforcement has done is said that it matters and showed that it does not. Because in the academy, you're expected to hit these standards and they're ridiculous standards. Like some of the, some of the standards we have for mile and a half and all that stuff is like, that's not even, you got to breathe to complete it. And then, so, but then you're still, Oh, you got to hit the standards. You got to hit this pushups. And then once you get out, you get with an FTO and by and large, the FTO is like, yeah, that's a bunch of bullshit. Um, a guy like me, I'm 47 years old and I'm still in the top tier of our combat fitness test for SWAT. And we base it on the Marine Corps combat fitness. Now I'm, I'm proud of myself that I can still, that I can still do that. But the fact that at 47, I'm outperforming 20 year olds is sad because they should be blowing me out of the water. And, and the fact that I'm an outlier for taking my physical well-being seriously is even more disgusting to me. But you have to you have to build the culture because when there's no you could make it mandatory tomorrow and the only thing you're going to guarantee is lawsuits. And that's what drives me crazy. That's where I make the difference between cops and warrior police because you will hear cops gripe about snowflakes and the government even though they work for the government and all sorts of all sorts of these these issues. And then when you say, hey, your job's really important, right? Yeah, you're darn right. Hey, uh, you could die at your job, right? Yeah, yep. Hey, any moment. Hey, you want to come to the gym? Absolutely not. Go F yourself. <laughs> that blows my mind. And then, and then you'll hear the, well, I want to get paid. I want to get, well, that doesn't exist yet. In my department, it took me two years and... God bless Bert Soren and, and Jeff and everyone that helped me. I was able to build a really, really good facility at our academy. But let me tell you, two years, two years. I needed at one point $49,000 to get flooring, a rig that would support about 10 people that wanted to work out, dumbbells, all this stuff. I had it all, all parceled out. And then it goes up for the purchase order process. And next thing I know, I got all sorts of upper echelon. Well, let's add this. Let's, let's add this to it. And I want, I want a bathroom in that building. And, you know, we, what about some towel racks and all this stuff? The next thing I know, the purchase order is $250,000. And then they're like, yeah, your gym's like way too expensive. And I was <laughs> like, I was like, this is why people hate the government. Like, what is wrong with you people? And that's when kind of like you look behind the curtain and you're and you're like, it's not the system. It's it's the humans like we could do this. But at every turn, someone someone is just sticking their hands in it or saying this doesn't benefit me. I, I was talking to you. I was I was going to get back to it. And it reminded me of it. The jujitsu thing, which is which is physical fitness. When I went to Gracie, I was the first person in first person in my department that was certified as a Gracie survival tactics, which is awesome. I recommend it to anybody. I adopt a cop first and then Gracie survival tactics because it's absolutely applicable to law enforcement. Um, so I was the first to get certified. I was so jazzed. I went to my major and I said, hey, sir, I have a list of people that I would like to send next to this certification process. 
he looked at me and this, these are the words he said to me, James, and I'm sure you've, you've had similar experiences on the fire side. What's your angle? And I said, huh? And he goes, well, this is your certification. And I said, well, yeah. And he said, well, right now you're the only one on the department with this cert. And I was like, well, yes, sir. He goes, why do you want more people certified in, in your thing? And he was dead serious. And I, I was so naive and I always want to be this naive. I didn't get it. I didn't understand what he was saying. Well, you're blowing all that overtime, bro. <laughs> exactly. Like, this is yours. Why would you give this up? And I looked at him. I said, sir, this is like defensive tactics. And he goes, yeah, I don't, I don't get what your angle is here. And I said, I, I don't have an angle. Like I want more people to get exposed to this and get certified in this. And he goes, and he shook his head and he goes, I'll never understand you. Cool. You're just, you're just giving this stuff away. And I, I was dumbfounded. I, I couldn't, I, I can't operate that way to, to me, to, to be of service and in service is like, and don't get me wrong. Like I'm going to pat myself on the back and I'm going to tell my war stories to my circle, but to be of service is, is there's quiet rewards. There's not there. When you take your service and make it something else and make it about you and make it, make it, I have all these certifications and this is my class. And this is what this is, you know, without me, you can't do this. You're not being of service anymore. It's turned into something different. That's, that's competition. That's cutthroat. You can make, you can be a billionaire that way. If you want to screw over all your friends and destroy your team and take all of the credit and glory, but you're not going to be of service that way. And that's the same thing with working out what, and it's, it's slow and it's frustrating. And I always tell everyone that I failed for 22 years that I failed because I, I, I am, I'm blunt. I'm an a-hole at times. I, I will get in your face. But the ones that have come to me in earnest and said, hey, I need help. Like I need to, I need to get better physically. I, I will run through walls for you. Whatever, whatever I got, you got. And, and that's how you build the culture when they know you mean it. And it's getting better and better, but it's not fast enough to, to forestall what's coming. Because I see, I see the storm that's coming. With what law enforcement has done to itself and what society has now done to law enforcement, we are going to be challenged more and more on a daily basis physically. It's just going to happen. It's, it's happened on my department. I'm in a department with a, a quarter of a million people. So we're, we're a mid-sized city. We're, we're pretty big. And we are having more and more officers challenged and assaulted on calls. And the way you have a bulwark against that is to prepare them physically. And we're not doing it because our wellness programs are, hey, don't drink. And if you're thinking about taking your own life, call somebody. That's, that's not all the help that's needed. But you have to build a culture from the academy. And we talked about it from the academy. When you get them into it, when they see their body composition change, when they see, hey, you don't have to you don't have to eat like any cer certain type of way. You have to eat in moderation. You have to eat under control and, and you can you can have a calorie in calorie out balance and you just have to be consistent. If you hit it 50 percent, you're still going to see the benefits of it. When you get that, 
and you get that kind of buy-in and it's not that this is mandatory or we're telling you to do this or you're calling people names, then you have that buy-in from the academy. And then all you have to do is throw them the bone of, hey, you get three hours every week of OT to work out. You get, if you pass this fitness test, um, you know, at one point we had a fitness test where you could get leave. And all of a sudden the city attorney was like, no, nah, can't do that. And now they're trying to institute different things. So what I've done is I just leave myself available. Um, I, I, it's the strangest thing ever because I've helped a lot of people in the department just with dietetics, like just the basics and then workout plans and through Jeff and Jeff got so frustrated and Jeff and me, like, that's my brother. I, I, I love that man. Like uh, uh, him and Catherine are amazing, but he would come to our department just because he wanted to give back. And he did not understand. I tried to warn him. I said, listen, man, I said, you are going to find that cops are not going to want to do this. He's like, no, 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 don't worry about it. Like, I know we'll just get him to assimilate. And by the time he had had enough, it was the same four to six people that were coming out of a department of 400 people. And then he was getting the same smoke blown up his ass from the higher ups of, oh, we're going to do this, or this sounds awesome, or we're going to do this. And then it was like squirrel, and they're off somewhere else doing the next, you know, the winds changed over here. And he finally said, he goes, look, man, he goes, I love you. You're always going to be my brother, but I, I can't do this anymore. Like, this is frustrating as all get out. And he said, do, do you, and this, and this, this is obviously, you know, like, you know what Jeff's history is. He was like, I could, your, your job is, more dangerous than mine just because of the, the rules you're under. Do you guys not get that? And I was like, no, they don't. Because it's impressed upon the military. You're going into the danger zone. Like, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. And generally, especially of Jeff's generation, when they hit, when they were on target, they were on target. It's impressed upon us. And then you go out for your eight hours and guess what you find? I'm, I'm not getting shot at every day. Like this isn't, you know, I'm not getting into scenarios every day. It's, Hey, you know what? I can, I can kind of hide out. Let me go to Seven Eleven and grab like, you know, the big gulp and wow, this person's giving me free Chick-fil-A and I am a hero. And then before <laughs> you know it, you're 10 years in and you're wheezing when you're getting out of your car. We have to, we, those of us that are in the know, we have to constantly just like in the community and it's frustrating but you're going to have to talk to your blue in the face. You're going to have to keep at it and keep at it and keep at it. And eventually there's going to be more of us than there are of them. And what I found is this younger generation of police officer, they get it. I have had more of the younger police officers show up and now, and, and I love my chief. Unfortunately, he's leaving soon and I don't know what's going to happen to me because I don't know. I, I don't know how he lets me do half the stuff I do, but God love him. But um, we finally, every one of our precincts has a gym in it and like a really good, well outfitted, well thought out gym. And it's the younger generation that are using it um, because of the classes that we instituted, because they've been around me, um, my current wife, who's, who's uh, my, my, my number three, who's the best thing that's ever happened to me. She's actually at the academy. She's a, a phenomenal um, resource for working out and stuff like that. And, and that was the other thing. 
you have to, you have to, there's diverse groups within police departments and everyone can't be cookie cutter and everybody can't be on the same programming. Everybody doesn't like the same thing. That's the beauty of just programming is be like, yeah, Hey, you want to do this, do that, but come back to this basics and know your fundamentals and know how you move. Know, you know, have your kinetic awareness, like always be auditing. And once you get that and people can kind of understand it, it translates out into the street. That's what, that's what I don't understand about not instituting strength and conditioning programming, not even the combatives, just strength and conditioning. Everything I need to know about a police officer and what they're going to be on the street can come from strength and conditioning. If I take you into a gym and I put 225 pounds on a bar and I say, bench it, it is no different than you getting out of a police car, having a 225 pound suspect and me going, hey, arrest him. If you've never done it, if you've never gone through training, if you don't have a process, you're, you're in trouble. And what people don't understand is if you've had the basis of a process or what you think a police officer would do or what you think you should do, if you don't put your ego in check and you don't say, well, how do I do this? Your first impulse might be to get under that bench and try to move that weight and hurt yourself. Your first impulse as a cop might be, all right, well, here we go, and charge into that confrontation and get hurt. And people don't get that. They're like, well, why would they do that? Because that's what they think they're supposed to do because they don't have a process. They don't understand, all right, well, this person's bigger than me. I need to get to, I need to, get to an angle. Maybe I start with a leg kick. Maybe I get my OC. They don't have a process. So they're just going to go with, well, I guess this is, uh, this is the day I get hurt, and they go into it. Or human beings are cowards and liars. If we can shy away from it or we can lie away from it, that's going to be our go-to. We can make an excuse or just kind of walk away like we didn't see it or that didn't happen. We'll do it. Once you make a person self-aware of that, that's where their empowerment comes from. That, hey, you're going to try and chicken out. You're going to get scared. I give you permission to be scared. I don't give you permission to stay that way. That's what the physical realm can teach a police officer about themselves, about how they think, how they can solve problems. And I can see it. And just to have a foundation of strength, even if I don't give you the best combatives training in the world, if you think about the people that we most likely encounter in a criminal element where we have to take them in custody, strength counts a lot. If I'm stronger than the person that I'm trying to put in custody, even if I fumble my way through it, I'm generally going to be okay. And I, I don't understand why, why it is that we shirk our responsibility as senior law enforcement or law enforcement supervisors to provide that to officers. And yet every chance you get, you're going to tell me about the thin blue line and we're heroes and run around with Punisher stickers on your lifted truck and then get out of it at 300 pounds wheezing. Like, I, I, I don't understand that. But what we've tried to do is institute a culture of if you want help, just ask for help. We got it. I don't care if you come to me one day a week. I'll give you what I got. And it's it's starting right now. What they instituted is I'm actually people that are interested in law enforcement because we've had a recruiting problem. But my my city is we're on the high end. We get enough recruits now. You can actually come train with me. Um two times a week. And we've had a really good turnout for that program. 
because these the younger the younger generation wants it. They just don't they don't have good examples of. It. Like I, I you I can't tell you, James, how many times I've talked about warrior police and like what what does that mean to you? Like what like and when you explain it, they're like, yeah, that's what I want. Do I like is is being physical is is getting stronger a part of it? Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. Because that's how you lead with empathy and compassion. And these kids, and I call them kids because I'm older, but that's what they want. Because you know why they want that? We've been feeding that to them that hey, you should be empathy and compassion, and you shouldn't don't bully and all this stuff. But then as soon as it goes south for the adults of the world, what do we turn into? Bullies, and you're a snowflake, and oh, you're soft. What? You're talking out of both sides of your mouth. I want you to be empathetic. I want you to be compassionate. I want you to think of your fellow man. I also want you in the law enforcement realm to know that de-escalation is not a tactic. It's an outcome. So if you can talk with empathy and compassion and you can get someone to calm, to, to, to understand that they're being listened to and get them into a custody situation, absolutely. That's what I want. I don't care if it takes 30 minutes to an hour. However, if all you're doing is pleading because you know you don't have the physical strength or physical skills to take them into custody, then you're doing no one any service and you are not of service and you shouldn't have a badge. You should lead with empathy and compassion and know that you got the physical skills to take care of the situation when those things fail. And that's my job to teach you that. And we've, we've shirked our responsibility. I, I don't understand that. And I'm sure you see that on the fireside too, because you, like you said, it's box checking. And it doesn't do anybody any good. So that's just what we've tried to do is to, to build the culture. And it's slowly but surely, um, it's getting better. Yeah, well, I appreciate your, you know, your perspective. And obviously, you know, you talk about Jeff. I mean, not only is he tier one operator, uh, but also, you know, one of the most revered strength and conditioning coaches. So I'm, I'm a little less insulted now with the lack of turnout in a lot of the free classes that I put on when even Jeff is struggling to get people. George Ryan is another mutual friend that, uh, you know, again, is out there doing amazing things. Um, I want to flip this whole conversation on its head for a second because I've, I love the kind of warrior po poet um, philosophy that you have, the kind of walk softly but carry a big stick. Um, but when a lot of these conversations at the moment, the magnifying glass is put on law enforcement and we've covered so many areas of ownership that are absolutely imperative. One area that doesn't seem to get a lot of discussion anywhere is when you look at our streets, how fucking dangerous they are compared to, and you know, it's a great kind of area of the world to, to contrast with, say, Scandinavia, you know, where they're not having gang wars on the streets and their police aren't having to wear tactical gear all the time. Um, so back to that compassion, back to those two kids in the kindergarten, me personally having not only kind of listened to some amazing people on here, but also even been to, to places like Portugal that decriminalized addiction and started treating addicts as mental health patients rather than, than throwing them into the judicial system. And I'm not talking about selling, I'm not talking about smuggling, just the addicts. I look at the horrendous ripple effect of the prohibition of drugs in, in the 30s. And when you look in the research that all the kind of racism and bullshit that was even founded on in the first place, that has created the problems not only here in the US, but Colombia now pushing up to Mexico. You hear a lot of the veterans now talking about, you know, all the opiate fields in or the poppy fields in Afghanistan, all the kind of weird shit that was going on there and how that's, you know, funding terrorism. You've got the irony of men and women who fought for this country that then have to go overseas to seek some of these treatments that are helping them with their mental health. Um, so 
That's me. That's James Gearn. That's my perspective. With you flipping it completely on its head and removing law enforcement you know, as best we can, what are you seeing through your work in the gang unit and the drug units and undercover as far as things are in place that are setting our youth up for failure that then are becoming these dangerous people that you're interacting with? The, the absolute lack of, of self-value. And it is brought on by the doublespeak of adults who should know better. Um, and I teach, I teach community policing because um, it, like, it's, it's going to tie into the law enforcement. The war on drugs was the dumbest thing that we ever did. And you, and you can go into the history of it and why Nixon really was doing that. And there are racial overtones to it. Um, but basically what happened was instead of looking at actions, we made a substance the problem. And then on top of that, we didn't even come at it as, hey, this is a problem or this is a criminal element or anything. We use the term war, war on drugs, war on crime. And I, when I teach the community policing, and, and this is, this is I, I firmly support my city's core values, but this has always been a thing with me. When you use that terminology, there, there's one thing you need to go to war, an enemy. There is no one in the United States that is my enemy as a law enforcement officer. There just isn't. There's, there's, there's people that are doing criminal acts, and I'm, I have a sworn duty to, to take them into custody, to protect all that good stuff. But they're not my enemy. And I, I don't view them that way. Because the problem is, is if, if, you, if you're in the military and you're at war, then yeah, yep, that has a connotation to it. If you're a law enforcement officer, there is a myriad of people that you're going to, to encounter during your law enforcement career, and if you're looking at any of them as an enemy, the war, the war, then now you're starting to look at areas as this is an enemy-filled area, and now you're not looking at them as humans. Coupled with the fact, and there is a huge racial component to it, you are going to look at a certain segment of situation that is in the bad areas, the bad neighborhoods, and now, because I believe in implicit bias, now, before you even set foot in those areas, you already have a preconceived notion of what's going on. When I'm looking, especially in the gang unit, is the absolute lies that are being promulgated to such a degree that they are just, you, they're believed as truth at a younger and younger age. The, when, when, when I look at what's going on in, in my 22-year career, the, the, the age of those that are engaged in violence is dropped precipitously. Where we used to see the, the 17 to 24-year-olds, that that was, that was your really, okay, we have to, th these are the most dangerous because these are, they're in their prime right now. We're seeing 13 to 17-year-olds. And it's because there's no anchor. You are literally being told on, a, on an almost daily basis, wherever you turn, your government's corrupt, your police are corrupt, your country doesn't want you, and your country's corrupt. If you have a home life in which you're not valued there, and you're seeing incidents of violence, and you're seeing incidents of trauma, 
and there's nowhere for you to turn, then you can either go the route Shay went where you can say I'm better than this and I have to do it better. And it's not fair that I have to do it better, but I'm going to buckle down and I'm going to change this. Or you can go the simpler route, which is, you know what? It's me against the world. And the rest of the world is not as important as these three blocks. Where I grew up is the only world. There is no outside world other than this. And how these three blocks operate is how the rest of the world operates. And I'm going to be tougher. And it's deep seated. And what kills me, especially when I work with gang members, you don't wake up at 16 years of age and say, you know what, I'm going to go commit a violent act today. Now, absolutely. Can there be outliers, outlier examples of someone at 16 that just has some sort of mental illness that's going undiagnosed and then this is the day they break? 100%. But that's not the norm. That's not the aggregate. The aggregate is you've been seeing violent acts since you were three years old. And the kids that I work with at six years old the Hoovers come into your life. The gangster disciples come into your life. The hybrid gang that runs your neighborhood comes into your life. And these are your superheroes. And if there's no intervention, if there's no positive influence, and if there's someone that that's worse, that's telling you, hey, don't anchor yourself to the United States of America or to your state or to your city, anchor yourself to these three blocks. All you're getting is a failed adult telling you not to better yourself and to wind up exactly where they are. Now, couple that, if you do have a bad interaction with law enforcement, then everything's just reinforced. And we're not speaking, we, we as adults are not speaking to the reality of this. You, you're seeing it right now. Oh, mass shootings, mass shootings, mass shootings. Not once have I heard the, the words gang affiliated. And I know at least four of the incidents that have made national news are gang-affiliated individuals that got into a shootout with each other and hit unintended targets. But you're not hearing that because now the term du jour is mass shooting. Well, that's disingenuous and it's disgusting to me. Just as disgusting as law enforcement not owning up to the fact that we did this to ourselves. We did not educate. We did not enlighten. We, we tried to take shortcuts. We said, oh, we've got it. We've got it. We've got it. We did not invest fully in community policing. And then when we did, we went community policing on steroids where every turnstile jumper is going to turn into a murderer. So hammer them with the stiffest penalties you can get. So it's, it's just people that should know better turning a blind eye to, to the truth and to the reality of the situation. I, I, am, I love my gang members, every last one of them. And I'm an outlier in my profession because I don't consider them the enemy. I don't, cons- I don't use the, oh, they're animals or that's, there is no such thing to me as a bad neighborhood. There's functioning and non-functioning. When I teach community policing, I teach, the, I teach all my officers, you go in and you find the good. The good will always point out the bad. Because it's always going to be the smallest percentage of any non-functioning neighborhood. Because in my city, there's approximately 250,000 people. If 0.1% of them on any given night decided we're not going to be police tonight, it would take us weeks to get that under control. And it would take all of us. The reason I get to do what I do is because 
99.9% of my citizenry believe in what I do. So you can't fall to that, oh, everybody hates us. But the flip side of that is when you denigrate institutions so badly and you generalize while swearing no one should generalize, then you're getting what you're getting. You're getting juveniles that have no anchor to anything. They don't believe in country. They don't believe in state. They don't believe in a higher purpose because all that is not available to them because all they hear is this is, this is to keep you down. And this is not, you're never going to make it no matter what you do, you're going to be looked at as this, that, and the other. Then what, what do you expect? And to not own that, that's what drives me crazy because it's not going. It's not going to get better. And and for such a a data driven population, we don't want to look at the data that doesn't that doesn't correspond with whatever our ideology and whatever our side is. And it's on both. It's on both sides of the ideological spectrum. Like I always like I keep telling people, I was like, the middle road is less taken, and we better start taking because there's always going to be different sides, different perspectives. And then you, you have to compromise to get to where it's at. What I see right now, especially in the gang world is older gang members are just using juvenile gang members to continue beefs that they've had from high school. And you have politicians and, and uh, supervisory structures that are like, well, this never would have happened. There was a hierarchy to the gangs. And like, we eliminated that. That's all based on lies, too. When I hear old gangsters talk about, oh, we used to we used to solve our problems one on one and we would duke it out. No, you wouldn't. That's a lie. If you could get a hold of a gun as quick as these kids would, you'd be doing the same thing these kids would. And the reason I know that is because I have you telling these kids, hey, man, get a strap. That solves problems. And it also speaks to the denigration of the warrior culture. And saying that you shouldn't be a warrior and you shouldn't you shouldn't understand violence. You, oh, that's bad, bad, bad. No, you should understand it to the point of keeping it under control and know what happens when you pull that trigger. And we just as a society, we don't. You should you should know, you know, the, the prohibition of drugs, the prohibition of, of anything. Well, just don't do it. We're beyond that point. Because all this stuff has been proven, well, you know what? What Case by case, that doesn't seem to be the case. And some people can handle it and some people can't. And some people, their traumas drive them to this. Well, now we're here. The information is available. So we have to, we have to go to the reality of the situation rather than, well, this phrase works. It's like putting up a no bullying in, a sign in school and then just wiping your hands and going like, well, that solves that problem. It's ridiculous. And what I'm seeing is, I've got 12-year-olds that are engaged in, in gang activity, and, and I don't have help because if what, what I want to see is a 360-degree approach to criminal problems that, that could have interference run earlier. So when a counselor sees it, a teacher sees it, a parent sees it, a community member sees it, law enforcement sees it, we all come together and say, all right, this is an identified problem. And maybe it's in elementary school. Hey, we had some outbursts. And hey, an SRO saw one time because they went to the elementary school and obviously the kid was just having some difficulties. Um, mom didn't seem all too with it. We talked to a teacher. Okay, cool. Let's call CPS, right? So that's one incident. 
middle school. It happens again. Now they're fighting. Okay. These are the, um, these are the actions we took high school. It happens again. Okay. Hey, these are the actions. Now we've done everything we could. We thrown every resource available. So now at 19 years old, this kid commits a gang felony. All of us can go to court and it's not, I saw a suspect arrested saying it's your honor. This, this is everything we've done up until this point. And now no citizen, I mean, there's always going to be outliers that are going to complain about anything, but there's the citizens are going to be like, Oh, well, I didn't know that. I didn't know we brought in this intervention, this intervention specialist. And we tried this and we tried that. And now law enforcement has a purpose other than saw a bad guy arrested. Saying. So what I'm seeing is the dire need for a more focused deterrence and not a pathway to get there because there's the amount of violence I'm seeing in my city and the quickness to engage in it shows you the lack of self-worth of the offender. I can attribute all criminal behavior to the value the person places in and of themselves because they don't care about their lives because everything is being told to them that nobody else cares. And I'm not going to be that guy. I'm an outlier in my profession because, and anybody will tell you, I want to save them all. Every last one. You're not going to tell me I can't. That's my job. I signed up to be better. They didn't. So when they meet me, they're going to see the warrior. They're going to see the physical prowess. They're going to, if you want to train with me, you can come train with me, kid. I, I have, um, I have a work phone and every morning I have, I have kids that would never, would never admit it. Have a good day today. Get an A. Hey, you got your, you got your test today. That's all they want to hear. And I don't know if I'm having an effect, but that's, that's not for me to parcel out. That's if they need me, they got me. That's a part of law enforcement. And a lot of cops don't think that way. I want them to, because you'll hear that while I'm not a social worker, the hell you're not. The hell you're not. What your job entails is that society has declared that these are the norms. And part of law enforcement's function is we are going to use the tools and resources available to us to get the majority of people to conform to social norms. Well, guess what that is? That's social work. And if I can do it by speaking to a kid so that he becomes a better adult, then I'm ahead of the game because that's one less adult I got to deal with that has a criminal element. And that's what I tell my law enforcement, like my community is when, when you go to roll call and you're hearing everybody kind of say, I'm going to be the first one to get a gun off the street. I'm going to be the first one to get a felony. I'm going to be first one DUI drugs, whatever. That's you, you need that. That's, that's part of it. But to me as an older officer, I, you know what, I'm going to find a kid that wants to be an astronaut and doesn't feel safe in his neighborhood. And I'm going to go make his neighborhood safe enough for him that he becomes an astronaut. You get you 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 reframe it that way, and now you have a purpose. Now you have a mission. Now it's not I'm going out for my eight hours to find the worst. It's I'm going out for my eight hours to protect the best. And it will change, it will change how you view it. And when you see these incidents, you'll still get frustrated because I get frustrated, but you'll know I can have I can make more of a difference by showing a difference. Because these kids. It's the strangest juxtaposition I've ever seen in my career because I'm dealing with a younger kind of a, a younger offender. When they're out there and they're they're doing what they're doing, especially in the gang life, 
They're not 14 and 15. They're just not. And when you hear people say, oh, they're just babies, they're just children, that's bullshit. You haven't seen them like I've seen them. And when I hear like a parent on the news or whatever, all their smile lit up a room and they were so funny. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent they were, but they were also engaged in behavior that led to the consequences that they're now facing. But my empathy and compassion, when I know that I get them in in the box and I'm interviewing them and now the consequences of their actions are dawning on them, guess what they become again? A 14 and 15 year old kid. And I feel for every last one of them. Because now I'm not looking at the gangster anymore that was on social media flashing a gun and was out there doing dirt and got caught. Now I'm looking at a 14 and 15 year old kid and I ain't writing them off because I wouldn't have not not wanted me written off at a 14, 15 year old kid or the 16 year old that got really, really angry at the world. I would have wanted someone to do to try to reach me and I'm not going to reach every one of them. And that's the other thing people need to understand. Some of these kids, the, the way I parcel it out is there's, there's that fence. And there's the ones that are on the fence and they got one toe in, one toe out. And they're the most fascinating conversations I'll ever have because they are funny. They're street smart. They, will, they, they, know, they know the game, but they also know what they're doing. And by and large, they want someone to love them enough to tell them to stop on a consistent basis. Then you got the ones that are looking up at the fence and that's the younger set. And the person that's on the fence might be their older brother, their cousin, their father, whatever. They're looking up at the fence and they're deciding, do I climb it? Do I, do I, do I jump to that side? Like, I don't know. This is the coolest thing. And maybe I meet that kid and now he thinks I'm the coolest thing in the room. I'll take that all day long. You should, you want to be a police? Yeah. Yep. I can teach you how to do that. You want to go in the military? Want to be a lawyer? Want to be a doctor? How do we figure that out? But then there are those that are over the fence. And that can be a 14, 15, 16-year-old. I have seen 15-year-olds that got bodies on them, and they don't operate like the rest of the kids that I run into. And society needs to understand that. And I will absolutely grant society, yeah, we, we did that too. We made that one too. That 15-year-old, part, part of that is our responsibility. But part of that responsibility was we didn't intervene. We didn't, we checked boxes. We didn't recognize that 15-year-old for what they were. And now incarceration is, and I don't shy away from that either. Like I, I learned from, from one of my Taekwondo teachers, I, I love you, I forgive you, how can I help you? And how can I help you means sometimes you're going to have to go into adult timeout for a couple of years and you're going to have to figure your stuff out. And I'm seeing a lot of that with like a lot of the the nonprofits that are trying to solve violence and all this stuff. And the, the nonprofits are run by people that, well, I got out of prison and I'm from the neighborhood. So I tell these kids not to engage in what I engaged in. Well, I'm sorry. You're going to need a little more than that. And when people want to push the violence interrupters or we need mentors that are from, you know, the streets. No, it, it depends. Because you're leaving, you're leaving part of that equation out because you want your ideology to reign out. Yeah, they went to prison and they may have legitimately turned their life around, but where were they? They were in prison. How did they get there? Law enforcement. So you're leaving a vital part of that system out of the conversation. So what turned that person around was the consequences of their actions. 
And you can't, you can't leave that out. I'm, I'm, I'm fighting that battle now because it's an easy box to check. Oh, we have this violence interrupters and they're from the neighborhoods. And then, you know, you can't possibly speak to these kids. The hell I can't. I'm human, right? And they're human, right? So yeah, I, I can speak to them. So I'm, I'm seeing a lot of disillusionment and doublespeak and not an anchor to something greater than themselves. And it, it boils down to like me, especially like I work, I work with a lot of, of, of young black kids. They're like, that's just, that's just who I run into in the, in the gang unit. And it saddens me that they don't consider my history is their history. This is your country. I'm your police. And that's on me. That's not on them. I, I signed up to do this. They didn't sign up for this. They didn't sign up to be better. And if they're listening to voices that are telling them lies, then I need to listen to them to figure out where those voices are coming from and give a good counter argument and explain or go confront those voices and say, what, what are you doing? And I, I've done that. A lot of the work that I do now, thanks to my chief, is direct intervention where I will go to a gang member's house and go talk to his parents and say, Hey, what's, what's this all about? And do you know this? And Hey, do you know your child's at risk? And I've, it's, it's a boom, but it's not, it's not normal police work. And that just comes from, that's just how I, I, how I view the world. Like I'm, I'm not going to look at, I don't parcel it out. Good evil. There are evil acts. Absolutely. But you're not going to tell me that a 13 year old kid is just a write-off. Like, no, nah, it's, it's, it's not going to happen with me. Well, again, that kind of circles around to how we began this conversation, which is the power of mentorship. You know, I mean, obviously you went and put uniform on. Shea, you know, created his basketball league. And that's something that's just come up and over and over and over again. I got a friend who has a, a firefighter mentorship program here that has removed the barriers to entry. It's free. As long as you can get to the station three times, three times a week, they will teach you how to be a fire recruit. And there are scholarships for the academy and there are departments waiting to hire them on the other side. You know, my son is part of the JROTC program. I've watched him thrive in that and he runs track and cross country now. These are other men and women that, you know, not the parents. So the power of mentorship, the power of each and every one of us, whether we're a policeman or a firefighter or a teacher or just a member of the community, rather than pointing the fingers at other fucking people, especially these dipshits in these political buildings, actually look <laughs> in the mirror and saying, I'm going to fucking make a difference. I'm going to start in my home and then I'm going to look in my community and figure out what I can do. If we can all have that conversation and take a step back and look at every single person that surrounds us and remember that they were all toddlers as were we none of them thought about being homeless or addicted to, to meth or living under a bridge or selling their body for sex or joining a gang they just found themselves on that path that we as you said not focusing on the fucking you know the few that you can't change because that's always going to happen but the mass that you can to move the needle that to me is the takeaway of this conversation and I couldn't agree with you more and it's the ownership on us. If we're wearing a uniform on our, on our fitness and our, and our um, you know, training ability, but as human beings, for us to own the fact that we can positively affect other people in our community and if we all do that, it will change. It's that simple. Yep. Yep, absolutely. And that's, it's the, 
it's easy to say it's, it's, it's hard to implement because there's so many, there's so many outward forces that are just, that are just coming at us, but it's, it's what I've always gone back to. Um, and it, in the law enforcement community, I, I, it makes us better. Um, because it is, it, what we see and what we go through, it is very easy to get jaundiced and, and it's set up that way. But when you can always go back to that one kid, who's going to bring a smile to your face, that one, that one person in the neighborhood who's got, got the joke. Um, and I've always been lucky enough to either have mentors within, within the department, or that was just kind of where I went with it. I always found the good. I, I never, I, I, the bad's going to show itself. Like that's just, that's just how it works. If I found the good, it made me better at my job. And then it, it made me, my, my job is, is big. Like people try to make the job small and just enforce laws, all that stuff. My job is big, but my in my, my impact, I can start small and it'll get larger as I go on. Cause all I need is one. And, and that, that's to your point. Like that's, if we focus on that, which everyone says, but then it's, it's harder to implement because we think we have to be the loudest voice or have the most impact or whatever. But, um, it's, it's always held me in good stead. Um, even, even, and by no means am I perfect. I like, I always say like, I could go out tomorrow and make the biggest mistake of my police career. And I would be, I would be fighting for my life because I made a mistake, but with with the attitude that I've developed, with the self-awareness that I try to keep within myself, with the humbleness that I try to keep. Like, that's why I go spar with Mitch, because he will hand me my ass within 20 seconds so that I don't <laughs> get too big for my britches. But with that attitude and with the training, it is less likely that that is going to happen. And I, I am I am aware of these out, outward forces. They're, ma- they're making it worse. You know, you mentioned the politicians. They're making it worse. And they should know better. Um, but there's nothing I can do to have an immediate impact against that except help my profession get better and and be better on the street. And that's just like like with with Adopt a Cop BJJ, which is something that Mitch started, and you can you can sign up and and go to jujitsu. That's the whole that's the whole tagline of that is better training, better officers, better outcomes, and and you can have an impact. And just the mere just the mere fact of having a physical presence and walking into some of these non functioning neighborhoods, you're never underestimate being the being the coolest coolest thing in the room. And that's that's how I get a lot of these kids is because the coolest thing on their on their corner is the the gang member or the drug dealer or the flashiest car. And then they see me and I'm, I'm something different and I'll take it all day long. And if you want, if you want to come train with me, I'll come train you. If you, you know, whatever I can do in the smallest instance to have some kind of impact to turn them the other way, then and it makes it, it makes it all better. And there is nothing, there is nothing more positive than a human being, a, a police officer with a mission with a purpose. There's, there's nothing more powerful, a a human being with a purpose. There's nothing more powerful than that. When you, when you know, well, I I'm doing this for, for X, Y, Z. And that's in the gang unit. That's what I do. I, I want, I want those kids to realize this isn't all there is these three blocks. This isn't, this isn't all there is. You don't have to go down this path and, and somebody's here that cares about you. 
And it just makes me better at the job. I feel it makes me want to train. It makes me want to be physically strong. It makes me, it makes me want to go run Jeff's programs, which in the middle of them, I'm like, I hate you, Jeff, but <laughs> that I, I know at the end I'm, I'm getting better. And I know that the, and I'm not big on the, that's your why. Cause my why can change from day to day, but it does give me the impetus to get in the gym because I know that, that that's my end. I'm going to look different. I'm going to operate different. And as a law enforcement officer, I signed up to be different. And that's, and that's the other thing um, that I, that I, I get disillusioned with. There's this huge drive right now to, Oh, the the police are just the same as no, we're not. We're not. And we need to get away from that because of my training, because of my experience, because of what I've been through, I am different than the civilian population. I just am. I am not better than, but I'm different. And we need to get away from this. Oh, they're just this. No. And, and I've seen chiefs and higher ups kind of, you know, there's a Robert Peel quote where the, the police are the public and the public are the police. That's not the end of the quote. The full quote goes on to say that the police are privileged to do what is incumbent on every citizen to be responsible to increase the safety of their community. And that's what needs to, needs to be out there. Like I'm, I'm different than you because I signed up to do a job that is dangerous and it does give me insights to things that you don't. So we have to take the reins of that again and tell people like, yeah, I need your, I need your help. And that, and, and that lends itself to going out there and talking to everyone and saying, Hey, this is, this is why I do what I do. And this is why you shouldn't do this. So it just, it just makes us better on our job to have those those personal connections and to do that one-on-one and to try and increase the, the education and enlightenment of the general populace. Cause that's, that's, what's going to save us all in the end. Absolutely. Well, Mark, it's been such an amazing conversation for people listening. If they want to kind of follow you slash reach out to you, where is the best platform online? <laughs> so, um, tactical and it's uh, TAC. T-I-C-O-U-L-L. And that's on Instagram. So that's my that's my public Instagram handle. Um, anybody that's interested in law enforcement, you can just DM me. I will get back to you. I don't have that big of a following. Um, and then if if you want to come train, you can you can hit me up there if you're in the area. And then any anything else, um, I answer questions uh on an almost daily basis. And a lot of the stuff is um, if you don't want to contact Mitch Aguiar directly, I can, I can answer those questions. And I have a lot of, uh, people that I run Jeff's programs. Like I'm, I'm on Jeff's, uh, 365 program. Jeff is a personal friend. So if anybody's like, Hey, I don't want to ask Jeff, but can you answer this? I'm available for those two. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't ask Jeff any stupid questions. He doesn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You can, you can go through me to ask the stupid questions that, uh, that Jeff, Jeff would get short shrift to. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's how you can uh, reach me. Beautiful. Well, again, I just want to thank you. It's been such an amazing conversation. Um, you know, we've, we've hit three, I think, real strong pillars in, you know, what in this conversation is law enforcement. Obviously, there are parallels to fire and, and so many other professions as well. But you have such a unique lens. And, and I love the fact that kindness and compassion, just like BC Saunders and some of these other guests I've had on, are at the core of what you do. And I, I'd like to think that's the same with me. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. 
Thank you, James. This was, this is, I, I, you know, obviously I love the sound of my own voice, but having these conversations with, with like-minded individuals is, it's going to be what saves us in the end. And, you know, the, thank you for your fire service. Thank you for doing what you do with the podcast. And there's a, there's kind of a reticence right now to, to tell people to join law enforcement or fire. I'm telling people right now, now's the time. Now is the absolute time to get into to get into these professions. Good humans are always needed and always wanted. So thank you. Thank you.